The Guardian. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. Mr. Murdoch, you must be the first Mafia boss in history you didn't know he was running a criminal enterprise. Mr. Watson, please. I think that's inappropriate. Another two hours of grilling, but still no smoking gun. I'm Hugh Muir, and on this week's Media Talk, we analyse James Murdoch's second stint in front of the Culture Select Committee after he answers more questions about the scale and scope of phone hacking. Did his account ring true? Is he guilty of mismanagement rather than criminal enterprise? And if he's not telling porkies, who is? It's all coming up on Media Talk from The Guardian. So here we are again. Four months on from his first appearance in front of MPs, and after a bladder testing two and a half hours in a cramped room at Portcullis House, James Murdoch was back giving more evidence about what he knew and when, while all those naughty things were going on at the News of the World. He was back primarily to clarify some holes in his original testimony, most crucially concerning the infamous For Neville email, which proved that hacking went beyond News International's one rogue reporter defence. In his evidence in July, James told the committee categorically that he'd never seen the email. Colin Myler, the ex-editor of the News of the World, and Tom Crone, News International's former legal manager, said that he had. More on all that in a moment. First, let's hear a bit of the action. Things began in the committee room, much as they did last time, with a Murdoch mea culpa. I've had some time to reflect on all of these events, and it certainly is a, it's appropriate to reflect and, and, to, and to, I think... I think the whole company is humbled by this, and what we're trying to do, and what I'm trying to do, is learn from the events over the last number of years, try to understand why the company couldn't come to grips with the, some of the issues in front of it in as fast a way as, uh, as I would have liked or the company would have liked, and learn from those. So yes, I think we're all humbled by it and trying to improve the business improve the structures and leadership uh, across all of the operating companies uh, to make sure that these things don't happen again because they are something that I'm, I'm very sorry about. But although everyone was feeling humbled, this time round there was no pie. Instead, the few theatrics on offer came courtesy of Tom Watson. You're familiar with the word mafia? <laughs> yes, Mr Watson. Have you ever heard the term murder, the mafia term they, they use for the code of silence? Uh, I'm not an aficionado of such things. Would you agree with, my, uh, with, with me that this is an accurate description of News International in the UK? Absolutely not. I think that's a very, you know, I frankly think that's, that's offensive and it's not true. There are allegations of phone hacking, computer hacking, conspiring to pervert the course of justice, perjury facing this uh, company, and all this happened without your knowledge. Mr Murdoch, you must be the first Mafia boss in history you didn't know he was running a criminal enterprise. Mr Watson, please. I think that's inappropriate. Mr Chairman. And whilst there was plenty of smoke and mirrors from James, this was the closest we got to a smoking gun. Mr Murdoch, let me just ask you again. Did you mislead this committee in your original testimony? No, I did not. So was it Mr Crone, a respected lawyer and in-house legal advisor for many years? As I said to you, as I, as I wrote to you and I issued a public statement, certainly in the uh, evidence that they gave to you in 2011, um, with respect to my knowledge, I thought it was inconsistent and, uh, and not right. And so I dispute it vigorously. So you think Mr. Crone misled us? 
that it follows that I do, yes. And so do you think Mr. Myler misled us as well? I believe their testimony was misleading, and I dispute it. Ah, the plot thickened. Here in the pod, I have The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Alan Rusbridger, and on the line, Roy Greenslade, Media Guardian columnist and professor of journalism at City University. Thank you both for joining us in this calm after the storm. And Alan, let me start with you. Um, what did you make of James's tricky second album? Well, he had to tread a very fine line between uh, admitting that he knew anything, uh, and that was clearly going to be fatal to his future prospects within uh, News Corp, uh, if not open himself up for legal action, or effectively admit that he was incompetent. He had to go for the I knew nothing, uh, I knew nothing what was going on in my own nose defence. Uh, and that was the defence he went for, and I thought uh, he stonewalled pretty effectively for more than two and a half hours, maintaining that line that uh, he he knew nothing, nobody told him anything, uh, even though that made him look slightly ridiculous. He spread a lot of blame around, didn't he? He blamed virtually everyone. I mean, that's the situation the company is now in. They've got rid of, um, uh, well, I mean, they've closed the newspaper. They've got rid of the entire staff. He blamed the former editor. He blamed the former lawyers. He blamed the former executives. Nobody kept him in the loop. Nobody told him anything. Uh, he had no idea what was going on. And he definitely stuck to, to his line on the Four Neville email. I mean, a lot of this is about emails, isn't it? We, we learned that this week that the police are now going through 300 million emails from the News International Service. But of course, the, the Four Neville one is particularly um, interesting because that was the one that, that led us to believe that uh, hacking uh, was known pretty high up the scale in News International. Now, he had to deal with that. How well do you think he did? Well, it's a problematic one for him. The two things struck me about that. One is that... Uh, this does just make him look incurious and, I would say, incompetent. Um, I think Philip Davis brought out that very well in questioning. He, he uh, rather woundingly compared him to a manager at ASDA <laughs> and said that any any manager at ASDA where Davis used to work uh, faced with this kind of uh, payment uh, and uh, in knowledge that there was legal advice would have asked to see the legal advice. You know, That's what any manager... Uh, would do. Uh, here, here was James Murdoch with this uh, email that everybody who read saw was explosive, uh, and yet apparently the only question he asked was, how much is this going to cost us? The second thing that struck me was uh, he said at one point, I've only recently seen the Four Neville email. Uh, this was an email that was first brought into the public eye in July 2009 by Nick Davis at a very dramatic uh, Commons Committee hearing. Uh, so if James Murdoch is really saying that two years later uh, he only recently looked at this email, then either he's so uninterested in the goings-on of his own company he's tiptoeing into the area of willful blindness, which you remember was the sort of Enron yeah, charge, yeah. Uh, or he's not telling the truth. Uh, but uh, either way, it's a very uh, dangerous position for a man who is running you know, a very large corporation to adopt. Roy, willful blindness and not telling the truth. You were there. Um, which of the two seem closer to the truth to you? Well, it's extremely difficult. I thought, actually, um, that he put up a pretty good defense of an indefensible position. Uh, and uh, I don't think you could actually be certain of the willful blindness, for instance. Uh, but I think it's the incuriosity. Obviously, he's not a journalist, and therefore I know in that situation 
we would expect a journalist to have asked questions that he didn't ask. But I would even think that um, a manager, a person who is dealing with a large company, would still want to know more than he apparently was willing to ask. It was still, and I thought Philip Davis's ASDA moment, when he sort of compared um, what went on at ASDA, which is owned itself by the giant U.S. corporation Walmart, um, that he, um, as an executive there, couldn't have got away with merely a penciling agreement to 500,000, 700,000 as a settlement for a legal matter without... Um, somebody above him asking questions, or if he was the main man, asking those questions himself. And it's that, I think, which leads to incredulity. You saw it in some of Whittingdale's questions, the chairman, and you saw it quite clearly in Davis and occasionally in Paul Farrelly MP. And it is, I think, largely the public and journalistic response to the whole affair, which is how could he not have known? Okay, if he didn't, why did he not know? And I think he couldn't really escape from that conundrum. But I have to say, as I said before, he made a pretty good effort at doing so. Alan, uh, were you satisfied with the questioning? Um, Because one thing that strikes me is that we're being asked all the while to believe that uh, very senior people in News International didn't really know what was going on or in News Corp didn't know what was going on. When, by contrast, you read memoirs by people like Andrew Neil. Um, and, and, and what they say about the, working for Rupert Murdoch is that you can get a call from him at any time. He'll want to know what's on page 31, that he actually is very across what's happening in his organisation. Well, the senior executives I've spoken to at uh, News International uh, who used to work there in the past uh, say that it was a very tight place in terms of um, expenses and decision-making, that this wasn't some kind of hippie camp. This was a place where if you wanted, the, the budgets were meticulously gone through and you had to go through line by line justifying everything. So the notion that the people in charge of the organisation didn't know of tens of thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds being paid to uh, private investigators, uh, I don't think uh, stands any scrutiny. Given that that sort of thing is out there, that we know that, do you think the questioning that James had today... Uh, was adequate. It's very difficult in those committees um, because I don't know how many there were. There, there are eight to ten members, and they don't get the chance to construct a case, uh, to go through the forensic evidence, and to construct an argument uh, in the way that a QC would. And um, James Murdoch must know that at some point during the Leveson inquiry, which has a team of uh, counsel. Uh, he will be put through the same material uh, and the same paces, but at this time probably over a period of two or three days, if not a week, uh, and that this is just a, um, a limbering up for something that will face him within the next two or three years. Uh, Roy, let's talk Tom Watson. Um, he was the star last time. Was he the star again today? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I thought he went into some fairly arcane stuff. I think when he revealed... Um, his conversation with Neville Thurlbeck, the chief reporter of the News of the World, the um, man for whom the four Neville email contents uh, were due, um, I felt that was a bit difficult to follow. I also thought uh, his mention of the mafia and omerta was a bit uh, over the top and probably gratuitous. Uh, It will and has done already made the headlines uh, but I thought that was uh, rather unfortunate. No, I thought 
Um, Philip Davis did rather better. I thought Paul Farrelly did quite well. So on this occasion, uh, Tom wasn't the star. I, it, you know, these are really difficult situations, aren't they? I mean, you don't, you don't have the opportunity when you're sitting around and each of you are given a set of questions to ask. They're pre-prepared and so on. It isn't like gradually catching someone out under the grueling interrogation in a witness box. Um, and I think people sometimes expect rather more of common select committees than they can have. I have to say I've been to lots of select committees in the past couple of years, and uh, this is about as good as it gets. Um, and I thought, um, obviously, some of the questions were incredibly weak, but I don't know what else in the circumstances they honestly could have done. Was that a problem with Tom Watson? Was he maybe emphasising uh, theatre above the actual uh, uh, honest uh, attempt to find out what actually happened? Well, I suppose that's a sort of fair point. Look, Tom Watson has been, has been pretty brilliant throughout this whole period, um, and perhaps, uh, you know, he, he got carried away on this occasion. And he's every right to be um, angry at, at the way he's been treated. He's one of the people who has supposedly been under surveillance um, he uh, knows that um, uh, Rebecca Brooks, the former chief executive, said that she was out to get him and so on. And so he's got all sorts of personal um, crises, I think, to overcome when he's dealing with this situation to keep his temper in check. Uh, but I think he allowed it um, perhaps to boil over with the mafia reference, although I thought perhaps he'd even prepared that question, to be honest. Alan, one of the things that uh, James Murdoch said was that uh, if it were to be found that there were serious problems, serious misconduct at the Sun, um, they would be willing to close that down in the way that uh, News International closed down the news of the world. Do you think he was serious? Well, that was rather a um, startling moment because I, I thought I heard him say earlier that, that there was no evidence that anybody at the Sun had engaged in uh, phone hacking. And then um, right, right at the end, he was questioned and asked the question again, and he didn't rule it out. He didn't deny it. He, I mean, it's all under the cloak of uh, sub judice or, or contempt. So um, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't have it confirmed, but nor did he deny it. And then he was asked, well, if it, if it was revealed that, that uh, some journalists had been uh, hacking phones, would you rule out closing it as you do the News of the World? And uh, he didn't rule it out. I mean, I don't suppose anyone's seriously thinking about it, and I think it's uh, unimaginable, but um, it was slightly, maybe maybe the question just caught him by surprise. It was slightly surprising that he he wasn't more unequivocal about that. Roy Greenslade, is it unimaginable? Because uh, people often say that the newspapers now form a very small part of News Corp's operation. Um, is it conceivable they could just say these papers are more trouble than they're worth? Uh, while Rupert Murdoch lives and... Um and has compass mentis, I can't imagine for a moment that he'd either sell off the sun uh, or close it. I, I think closure is uh, really impossible to contemplate, to be honest. Uh, anyway, we do know uh, from inside Wapping that they are um, preparing a, a, a sun on Sunday to replace the news of the world. I don't think they'd be going ahead with that if they were really contemplating closing the core paper in itself. It's still a profitable newspaper, um, although... Uh, James Murdoch referred to the news of the world in terms of it being a, a, a sort of financial pipsqueak. Um, it did uh, turn a profit. Um, and let's face it, the sun turns a profit where the Times and Sunday Times don't. So um, the, the idea that you could simply cut off the one arm 
of the News International division that actually makes money would be very strange. I, I, to, be, to be honest, I think that it is clear that the Management Standards Committee, this supposedly arm's-length uh, investigatory arm or, of News International, which has been set up specially to look um, at the Sun and at the whole company, um, uh, will probably by now have scoured virtually every email that's going. Um, and I would have thought if they were going to turn anything up, they would have gone quickly to the police. They've already put, reported at least one reporter to the police over a, over a different matter, over supposed payments to the police. Um, so I would have thought that work uh, would have gone on. And uh, I, I don't really think, if you read between the lines, he was put into a bit of a corner everywhere he'd think of closing the sun. And I think that he... Uh, really didn't indicate one way or the other whether they would. As I say, he doesn't have affection for these papers. He doesn't have an affection, I think, for newspapers in general. But his father certainly does, and I would have thought he'd do everything he, c- he can to keep it going. Well, perhaps, as he might say, he misspoke. But uh, for now, thank you both very much. OK, let's change focus for a moment, because joining us on the line from New York is the Vanity Fair journalist Sarah Ellison one of the few American writers to have been following the hacking story from the very beginning. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Um, Much excitement here in London. What's been happening in America? Have people been paying very much attention? They have been. They they aren't paying as much attention as they were over the summer when both Rupert and James um, sat before the committee. But I think at this point, there's this impression that James is essentially lost. And um, so while people are paying attention, the story is is sort of getting on and getting a little bit older here. Um, I, I don't think, I think people have sort of written James off at this point, which is, which is somewhat unfortunate, but, um, but that's the case. Well, of course, you've, you've written uh, another very well-informed and voluminous piece in Vanity Fair about the succession at uh, News Corp. Uh, you, you were saying that James looks a bit like a, a, a dead man walking. Is that the, the fee- feeling of the shareholders? Is it the shareholders that are likely to do for him? Well, I think that it, this is this highlights the nature and the, the, the sort of weird nature of News Corp, which is that um, the shareholders have already voted. The independent shareholders have already essentially voted him off the board, but they have no voice in the company because it's controlled by the family, um, by the Murdoch family. And so it's clear that the shareholders have absolutely no interest in James being uh, the next CEO, nor do they want Lachlan to be on the board. So they, they want to sort of vote all the Murdochs except for Rupert off the board. They still love Rupert. Um, inside the family, there is this, I think, continual sense that James can wait this out, that people have sort of very short memories when it comes to kind of corporate scandals. And then if he just sort of puts his head down, he can can sort of outlast this. Although there are clearly people inside the company who are loyal to Rupert who wish that James would just sort of step down and, and let them kind of get on with it. But is the, the issue of succession is, of course, becoming more and more pressing as Rupert gets older and older. And everyone points out that his mother is 102, but um, Rupert's already 80 and, and pressing... Um, his luck, I think, with the longer he stays at the, at the helm of the company. Does Elizabeth think that James can wait it out? Because uh, the reports say that she's been very cross with him. I think you've been saying that, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Liz, right? I mean, the, before the last appearance before the committee over the summer, Liz was urging her father to get to take control of the situation and sort of. Um, have James step aside. She told James directly that um, she wanted him to 
step down, step aside at the same time that they were talking about Rebecca and, and Les Hinton stepping aside. So I think that she's really out for him to remove himself from the situation because she's in the position where um, this company that is, is her inheritance and is well, you know what the, the family is supposed to be all about is crumbling before her eyes. And so she's trying to kind of, I think, push her brother over a bit to, to save herself and to save what's left of the sort of Murdoch legacy. It's extraordinary, isn't it? They're bringing back Dallas. You wonder why they're bothering, really, with this uh, family <laughs> drama within the Murdoch clan. It is but- incredible. I mean, the fact that they have been in a sort of family counseling um, with a psychologist over this for a period of months is also kind of astonishing, not because it's necessarily um, uncommon for families at, at big family corporations to go through a kind of counseling to figure out how they're going to deal with succession. But to think about the Murdochs doing that is sort of shocking when you think about Murdochs sitting around and and talking about their feelings about something like this. But I think what they're trying to address is the history of succession planning at the company has been really fraught. So Lachlan for a long time was the heir apparent and was, um, and sort of fled to Australia after he was alienated by Roger Ailes and Peter Chernin, who were two other executives at the company. And James has clearly been much more tenacious. But what I think the kids were trying to do is get into a situation where one of them could actually succeed their father as opposed to being alienated and undermined by him. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Now back to the studio, and I still have Alan Rushbridge and uh, Roy Greenslade here. Just some final thoughts from you both. Um, where do we go next? Is this as far, Alan Rushbridge, is this as far as the MPs can take it? Well, I suppose the only course open to them now would be to recall Tom Crone and Colin Myler, the editor and the lawyer, uh, who effectively James Murdoch accused of lying today, and um, uh, ask them what they made of it. But I don't suppose there's much more that the, the two of them can say. So I, I should think that's probably it as far as the committee is concerned. And they will write a report based on what they know so far. There's one um, one thing that is probably niggling away in their minds, and it came through in some of the questions today. There's this business of putting the committee themselves under surveillance. Uh, we heard it in, in Tom Watson, and I think I heard Louise Mensch uh, put it to James Murdoch that uh, the whole of the um, Commons Culture Committee had at one stage been put under surveillance by News International, just as we now know that they put the lawyers and their families under surveillance. And that seems to me a pretty profound chal- uh, challenge to Parliament itself. Because they did that in a court at the Old Bailey, that would be a criminal offence. Uh, I mean, certainly if you put a jury under surveillance, but... Um, this business, uh, and you know, I, I agree that Tom Watson was was over the top in, in in talking about the mafia. But this this feeling of a company that was so big and intimidating, uh, and if you showed any sign of challenging them, uh, they would start digging the dirt on you, is the bit that News International is the really damaging bit for the, for News International. You've got Ofcom at the, at the moment thinking whether News Corp is a is a fit and proper person. Uh, uh, in the sort of legal sense of that regulator. Uh, and th- th- it was very significant to me that James Murdoch was very, very um, apologetic for that business of of, um, uh, of really trying to dig the dirt on, on people asking perfectly legitimate questions about the company. Roy, where do you think things go next? And how on earth do they, with all that we now know, sanitise the company again? 
Oh, I don't think there's any sanitizing of the company. I think that's a huge problem for them. You've got, you've got another couple of years of this, of more revelations, of more names coming out of people who were hacked. Uh, and every time we think that we've heard the worst, um, it gets worse yet again. And the revelations of uh, the surveillance of the families um, of the two lawyers who have, uh, who've been representing the hacking victims was despicable and uh, it was very noticeable that James Murdoch um, chose the chose that kind of language to rebut that kind of thing having happened but I would have thought the committee will recall Tom Crone specifically on that matter he has been accused by James Murdoch very clearly of being the man who ordered that surveillance and you notice he mentioned another news international executive without actually identifying the person Again, I think that um, will need to be teased out. Um, and I think the committee, given their personal involvement, given that they were the ones who were followed, have a perfect right to recall him and to ask those questions. I think um, my understanding, uh, and that's from um, a source uh, that I think I probably share uh, with Tom Watson, um, is that uh, every single member of the committee was, quite apart from being under ordinary surveillance probably by a private investigator were also for at least three days followed by news of the world reporters some freelancers and some staff and that they were called off finally after three days when it became evident to some of those staff uh, that there was nothing to be got and a sense of embarrassment among the staff now i think that that's the kind of thing that the committee ought to be looking at too you wonder how they were able to get a paper out with all these people following people around. But uh... I tell you what's so extraordinary about this whole thing is the amount of money involved. When you think that there's Derek Webb, the private investigator, being paid by the day to follow people around, and we saw some of his bills on Newsnight over the past weeks, we know that Mulcair was 100000 or so. Um, to reiterate a point made earlier by Alan, I was a News International executive um, at both the Sunday Times and the Sun at a level where I was responsible for overseeing expenses and for paying for serializations and for kiss and tells and the whole thing. And I can tell you that we, you know, I, I was once suspended at the Sun for uh, a couple of days for wrongly paying an amount of money to the footballer George Best. And that showed the level um, at the time of Murdoch's hold over the organization. And I'm beginning to wonder if, if it was a relaxation of Rupert Murdoch over the last 10 to 15 years, which has really led to this situation, because my view is that he had a kind of street instinct that would never have allowed this to have got out of hand. And I think it's his delegating elsewhere uh, that has caused the major problem. It's not the crime that's so much of the problem, but it's been the awful cover-up. Well, we shall see what happens next. The more questions we ask, the more questions there are to be asked. But uh, whatever happens next, you can uh, read about more about the phone hacking scandal on mediaguardian.co.uk. And if you want to give your feedback on this podcast, head to our blog. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash media talk. My thanks to Alan Rushbridger, Roy Greenslade and Sarah Ellison. Media Talk's produced by Ben Green. I'm Hugh Muir. Thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.